Welcome to the Peace Catalyst Podcast, where we share stories to inspire, uplift, and encourage you in your peacemaking journey. I'm Becca Tyvel, and I work with Peace Catalyst International here in the Washington, D.C. area. And this week, I'm not joined by my wonderful co-host, Allie Bernison, but she is definitely going to be back for the next episode. This week, we're excited to bring a special conversation to you all um, based on a event that we held actually yesterday with Professor Miroslav Wolf of the Yale Center for Faith, Life, and Culture, and Herna Safariad, who is a Muslim leader and the Director of Outreach at Multi-Faith Neighbors Network. This conversation was hosted by our very own president of Peace Catalyst, Martin Brooks, and both Miroslav and Hernissa were the recipients of the Rick Love Peacemaker Award this year, the very first one, um, <clears throat> which is incredible in and of itself to learn from them about their own peacebuilding journeys and work that they do. Um, but this conversation specifically focused on ex- exclusion and embrace and what it means to embrace the other, which is based on Professor Miroslav's book called Exclusion and Embrace. And he just recently released a newly newly revised and updated version of his book. So we're excited to get into the conversation of, you know, why do we why do we um embrace the other and also, how does exclusion happen? And then how can we embrace the other um, on a more practical level? So I hope that you all will enjoy this conversation as much as we did and that you'll learn something new. Well, I uh, want to welcome the people that are uh, coming into uh, the podcast, the webinar that that we're doing on exclusion and embrace. We're uh, delighted to have uh, Professor Miroslav Volf with us and her Anessa Fariad, and we're going to have a a wonderful conversation here in a few minutes. Um, Based on the book, uh, Exclusion and and Embrace, that uh, Professor Volf and Miroslav uh, wrote, uh, and revised recently, a couple of years ago. So let me uh, first introduce myself. I'm Martin Brooks. Such a timely topic uh, as we look at our society around us and uh, what is going on, uh, how people seem to look for reasons to exclude others, uh, and then how, how can we come together and, and learn to embrace each other. A little bit about Peace Catalyst. We are a Christian peace building uh, sending agency. We equip and mobilize Christians to launch careers, hopefully, in peace building or to serve as, as a volunteer uh, peace builder. And you can find out more about Peace Catalyst on our website at peacecatalyst.org. Professor Wolf uh, is the Henry B. Wright Professor of Theology. Um, at Yale Divinity School and the founder and director of the Yale Center for Faith and Culture. He's written or edited more than 20 books and over 100 scholarly articles. Uh, His work's been featured in the Washington Post, Christianity Today, uh, Christian Century, Sojourners, many other outlets. Um, 
Today's discussion is going to be based on his book, Exclusion and Embrace, a theological exploration of identity, otherness, and reconciliation. Uh, that was released in 1996. Professor Bofa is originally from Croatia and wrote the book to reflect on uh, identity issues uh, surrounding the, the conflict in, in the Western Balkans. Then he revised the book in 2019. Exclusion and Embrace was the winner of the 2002 Grawmeyer Award in Religion and selected as one of Christianity Today's 100 Most Important Religious Books of the 20th Century. So we're delighted to have Professor Bof with us. Haranessa, uh, Haranessa Fariad is the Director of Outreach for Multi-Faith Neighbors Network. Uh, until recently, she was Director of Outreach at the All Dulles Area Muslim Society, uh, the Adams Center uh, in the DC area. Uh, Haranessa has been the Secretary of the Board of Directors at Virginia Interfaith Center for Public Policy and part of the leadership circle for One America, the One America movement. Oh, what else can we say about her and Essa? Um, she is the director of America's first Muslim youth choir, the Adams Beat. And uh, hopefully we'll hear a little bit about that uh, in a few minutes. And she's also the founder and co-host of the Sister Act podcast, along with her co-host, Sabrina Dent, uh, Rabbi Susan uh, Shankman, uh, and they have conversations centered around shame, stigma, women's rights, social justice issues, and how uh, the various faiths address these, these topics. So that's who we're going to uh, hear from today. Uh, Professor Vof, uh, thank both of you for, for being and her and Essa, thank both of you for being here today. Both of you are the recipients of the first Rick Love Peace Award. Uh, we uh, presented that uh, earlier this year. We'll be doing it again uh, next spring. Be, if you're interested in learning more about that, check out uh, our webpage. We'll, we'll be announcing uh, receiving uh, recipients uh, or applicants for, for this coming year's award, but you two we're the very first. Um, and Peace Catalyst has a, a fairly long connection with both of you. Um, Professor Bof, uh, I was saying that Rick Love, our founder, the founder of, Rick, of Peace Catalyst, studied at Yale or did some postdoctoral work at Yale um, at the time of the common word uh, discussions that, that were happening. Uh, and in, in some ways, your writings and your thinking have uh, created space for Peace Catalyst to do the work of Christian peace building, helping, helping the churches uh, rethink what it means to be uh, an ambassador for the Prince of Peace. So I uh, thank you for that work. And, and I see that, I think that, that your work was really foundational to, to the founding of Peace Catalyst. And Haranessa, uh, I think the first time I met you was at Duke Divinity School, um, and you've done many things with Peace Catalyst through the years. You're you're a practitioner. You you are one who bravely crosses lines of difference and uh, enters into these discussions. And it's just been a delight to to work with you, 
through the years. You've you've come to Louisville, Kentucky, where I'm located, um, and now you work with the Multi Faith Neighbors Network with uh, let's see Bob Roberts, uh, Pastor Bob Roberts, and um, Imam Majid from the Adams Center and uh, ambassador at large of religious freedom. Is that right? Uh, David, uh, uh, Rabbi David Saperstein. Yes, have I, have I, did I get all that right? You did get it right. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Thank you. Um, again, I'm, I'm delighted to have both of you here. And, and we wanted to, to base the conversation, at least to start out with, on the book Exclusion and Embrace. Miroslav, you, you wrote that book in 1996. And I was thinking just before the call, you know, that was before 9-11, when, when the U.S. consciousness um, of, of Islam and, and, and the, the two wars that happened after that, this book predates that. What, what was going on what what caused you to write to write the book? Thank you uh, first for organizing this discussion, and thank you for uh, uh, having me uh, be there as your conversation partner. And I want especially to thank her, Inissa, for her presence uh, here and for her such an incredibly important uh, work. I always think so. My father was a minister, and. He always thought that, that I should have myself become a minister because ministerial uh, role, being a minister, is much more important than the role of a theologian. And I have always agreed with him. It's only that this wasn't my my calling, and which is a different way to say of saying what uh, Huronisa does. Uh, practical work engagement with issues with people I find of, of tremendous importance and if my work can be of a little help uh, in that regard I am delighted but that's where real issues are wrestled with and that's where life happens and that's really uh, really beautiful. Now, my own, this book was written because I was wrestling uh, as a Christian how to respond to a war that was happening in former Yugoslavia. It was primarily war between two Christian uh, uh, groups, but it was on the one hand Orthodox uh, uh, against Christian Catholics and Muslims, uh, uh, Bosniak uh, Muslims. Uh, so it has this religious uh, dimension to it. And I was trying to respond as Croatia at that time was, uh, was a recipient, uh, so to speak, of uh, of pretty severe uh, aggression, something analogous to what's happening today in in Ukraine. And the book arose out of wrestling: how do uh, our identities as belonging to particular people, groups, religious uh, groups, kind of social identities, how do they play themselves out um, in situations of conflict? And what can uh, religious sentiment and commit commitments do in order to help uh, members of various groups transcend the, the conflict without denying who they are deeply in themselves. And that seems to me important, both at the level of kind of cultural belonging, but also at the level of religious uh, belonging. So it's a question of identity and difference. And in my terms, how does faith, in my case, how does Christian faith 
uh, speak to that uh, situation. And the situation was, an, as in many conflicts, you know, I remember how I felt uh, in the midst of the of the conflict. And I, I, I felt, you know, just give me a few B-52s and we're going to resolve this issue. Uh, responses to aggression uh, with a corresponding and even greater possible aggression so as to stop that uh, aggression. But then one steps back and asks the question, but is this really who I am? Is this really what, what, will, what will be ultimately helpful? Does it honor our common humanity of both enemies uh, or both, on both sides of the enmity? And it's these kinds of struggles that gave rise to that book. And I'll say one more thing. This is the first and maybe only book that I didn't write to anybody, for anybody. Uh, generally, when people, uh, publishers tell you, uh, when you write a book, you have to have audience in view. In this book, I had no audience in view, absolutely none. I was the audience of my book. I was writing this book totally for myself and for my wrestling. And it ended up being the most translated book uh, of all that I have ever written. Obviously, it's been recognized, uh, you know, many times, and, and as you said, translated into many languages. This idea of, of religious identity, I mean, were you, you were living in uh, Croatia when you first wrote it, or had you come to the States by that time? By that time, I had already come to the States, but I have been uh, living uh, in Croatia uh, or in Europe, and then coming regularly for teaching in Croatia during the entire uh, the entire conflict. So, uh, though I didn't live full time, I was still uh, there, present. Um, I lived in exile with students for one semester teaching, um, as we observe then from the exile uh, bombardments uh, and aggression that was that was going that was going on. Um, but it was written primarily in uh, Los Angeles uh, and then also uh, also in Germany. And after the hostilities had all already uh, subsided and uh, and in many ways ended. So did did you find yourself you you made the comment about B fifty twos? Did did you find yourself being drawn to these identity issues how, how did how did you relate to the to the different communities around you at that time you know i uh, this is um, uh, um, maybe i wrote the book partly because uh, my own ethnic and in some ways, religious identity is is complex. It's not a it's not a, a simple identity. I was born in Croatia. My father is partly Croatian, but he's also partly German. My mother is Croatian, but she's also uh, also Czech. I was raised in uh, in uh, I was born in Croatia. I was raised in Serbia. Right. So mm -hmm. in many ways, I was straddling the 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 line of skirmishes with a person or, or war uh, with a person whose identity was internally uh, complex. And even my own religious uh, identity, you know, we were small. Um, um, 
my father was a Pentecostal minister. We were a very small uh, minority uh, church persecuted by communists and persecuted often by majority uh, religious uh, communities. And at the same time, during communist rule, uh, we forged um, a certain kind of unity among uh, religious traditions. And by the time I was growing up, I had uh, friends in Catholic, non-Catholic, and Orthodox theologians. We were all uh, together because we were uh, we were all uh, under pressure from uh, an outside uh, from an outside force. And so that I always had this hybrid, if you want, identity. Uh, I remember coming to the United States and uh, starting to work at, at, at Fuller at that time, and everybody around me was Christian, and I didn't know what to do with myself, because I grew up in an environment in which most of my people around me, they were not Christians. They, I, I, uh, I had always needed to negotiate my way through uh, difficulties, and maybe that uh, to differences, and maybe that made it possible uh, for me to uh, to write a book in such a uh, such a way that um, I advocate in the book seeing things from both sides. Uh, and in some ways, I could not but see things uh, from both sides because I was living on two sides of the of the lines of, of struggle. And I find that in our own imagination understanding the other as the other understand themselves and which is to say a kind of arresting my sense of understanding even if i think i understand i ought to park that for a moment uh, and ask please tell me what is going on how do you perceive uh, the, the conflict otherwise i end up in my own little bubble and i act as if the other and other's voice and experience does not matter. Um, that's some kind of insult to them, but it's also not very helpful in terms of resolving conflicts uh, at all, uh, in a sense of being able then to find ways in which a bridge can be erected between uh, the parties. You, you mentioned multiple identities that that you had how how important is it and i think you you alluded to to this how important is it for people to to differentiate between these different um identities that they have why is it that we that we lock into one that makes us other other than the other um and and are we all is is the goal for all of us to be the same i mean to be to be different i mean i i enjoy the differences between the cultures i travel partly for that reason yeah um when when does it become toxic when when we're different and and how is it that we i'm asking too many questions <laughs> but how do we how do we maintain our uniqueness but do so in a, in a healthy way. Yeah, I, I think I'm, I'm going to ask you the same thing in just a second. I, I think that's a, that's a very, very good, uh, very good question, a very important question. And I would really like to hear what Kuranisa uh, would say about uh, this. F for me, um, I think it's really important for us um, 
to have our own discrete identities. I mean, if one thinks of ourselves as cosmopolitan, we are not, right? We are creatures of time and space. <laughs> we are not kind of, uh, el uh, uh, kind of levitating uh, above all the differences and just being our unique, uh, unique selves. We are always rooted in particular times and places that shifts and changes. And I think there is, as you said, uh, Martin, there is beauty uh, in that, in just in that, that rootedness in being who, who actually one is. I have always found that we have to have uh, identities, which means, by the way, if we have identity, which means that we need to maintain identities. So maintenance of identities is a very important thing. And I come from a small, a small uh, people group. If Croatians don't attend to the Croatian language that is spoken, it will disappear. <laughs> it will, uh, uh, it will dis as many languages have disappeared and with it a wealth of, uh, of human experience, ways of experiencing uh, the world. So I think that's to me is very important, but at the same time, it's really important for those boundaries to be porous for these boundaries to be to be able to be open so that the other can come in be our guest we can learn be enriched uh, by, by the other and i always compare that uh, when i speak to to folks in a very simple uh, metaphor it's like when i go traveling to different different places uh, you, Martin, mentioned that you enjoy traveling because you encounter differences. I enjoy it also because I can buy an object of art there, right? And then I then I bring it to my home. And when I bring it to my home, I give it a place. And there in my home, it's a reminder of the experience of something else, of someone else. But pretty soon when it sits in my home, it starts to symbolize not just what was there, but a kind of identity that has my identity that has been transformed so that I would not quite feel myself had I not had that experience, had this object not been not been there. And that's the dynamic character of our of our identities. Um, and um, the, 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 when identities become toxic is when they feel that they need to close themselves to the other, close themselves to learning from, from the other. And generally that feeling of needing to close oneself off comes in a situation when one feels uh, th for some reason threatened, either actually threatened or imagine oneself as being threatened. Then the borders, uh, boundaries closed, then I want to be myself, pure, uh, pure, pure, uh, pure German, pure, Ameri uh, pure American. Um, I mean, I remember, and uh, this would be the last thing that I, that I say, I remember during the, the, the Gulf War, uh, when French would not quite support uh, America's uh, adventure, unjust, in my judgment, adventure uh, in Iraq, and therefore adventure may not be the right term for it. Um, then suddenly Americans no longer like to eat French fries. We, we ate freedom fries. Uh, uh, th that's a kind of stupid and silly example of how we exclude the other when we are in uh, conflict, when we somehow feel threatened or insufficiently appreciated uh, by the other. So both affirmation 
joyful affirmation of identity, but also joyful affirmation of other and what other can mean for my own identity and help it blossom in ways that it otherwise uh, would not. It's beautiful. You, you talked about having porous, uh, our, our boundaries being porous. You talked about labeling, uh, using labels like the, the freedom fries. Um, Hernessa, you know, you, you work with a, with an interfaith group, a, a multi-faith group, uh, just that distinction would be, would be interesting, but how, how do you, how do you keep porous borders in, in your own heart when, you know, you have, you have faith convictions that don't necessarily align with the Christian faith and, uh, Jewish faith that, that you're interacting with or the people that you meet. Um, Professor Voth said that when we feel threatened, that we tend to respond or we can respond in toxic ways. How do you protect your heart from all of that? How do you, how do you engage the other? Thank you so much, Martin, for um, this conversation and that question. And want to thank Peace Catalyst for bringing this conversation to the table. I think it's an amazing um, topic to talk about, and it's a catalyst to other conversations that also need to happen surrounding these issues that are so prominent in Professor Miroslav's book. And it's an honor to be the recipient of the first Rick Love Award with Professor Miroslav, because when I read his resume, I was like, what? You picked me with him? <laughs> and yes, I, was like, <laughs> I was like, wow, I was like so honored because your resume is just amazing. And the work that you've done and the books that you've put out have really touched so many people's lives, not just Christians, but Muslims and people of other faith as well. And it's remnant of what we as faith people try to implement in our lives. And taking into consideration what you said before that I hope what I write is stuff that my, myself and others like myself who are practitioners of these, these topics of inclusion and making sure that the other person is being heard is so important because it's not just a layer of knowing the theology and practice, practicing it yourself, but it's also practicing it with other people around you who are extremely different than you, think different than you, pray to God differently than you, and have different viewpoints on issues. When I got into this field, um, I knew that there were going to be differences, obviously, and the differences between the Christian faith, the Muslim faith, the Jewish faith, or any other faith is there for a reason. And in the Quran, our holy book, God says, I made you into nations and tribes so that you can learn from one another. He made us different because there's beauty in that. Uh, the difference weren't were supposed to be things that bring us apart, but bring us together. And we can celebrate that. They weren't meant to be uh, topics and uh, excuses to wage war on each other. They were meant to bring people closer together. As an example, when our prophet Muhammad um, left Mecca, uh, which is not a city in Saudi Arabia right now, to Medina, Medina was known as Yathrib before he came. Um, he was called to Yathrib because the tribes in Yathrib were at practically war with one another. And these were Arabs who were not Muslim. Um, there were some Jewish tribes there and some Christian tribes as well. And they called him because the prophet was known to be uh, a trustworthy person, an honest person, an arbitrator within the community in Mecca. 
So he was being persecuted in Mecca because of his preaching of one God and um, the ways of, of Islam, our religion, that he ended up having to leave Mecca to Medina. And when he went there, throughout the whole time he lived there, he was never rejected by any of the tribes or any of the people who were of a different faith group. And why is that? Why is it that somebody who could come from a different community, from a different religion, come in and, in, and teach people about how to live together without changing those people's religion, without making those people feel that they are any less, without making people of other faiths feel that they have to change in order to be accepted. This was over 1400 years ago. There were Christians, there were people of the Jewish faith, there were people of no faith and, you know, just pagan Arabs who were just worshiping what they wanted. They were protected under the rulership of Islam under the Prophet Muhammad in Medina. They were able to go to their churches, they were able to go to their synagogues. And these are examples that a lot of people don't know about when we talk about Christian Jewish Muslim relationship during the life of the Prophet. And why would we, what I, would I bring this to the table is because these are examples of how our religion talks about these things. And it's exactly the same thing of what Professor Miroslav points out in his book from the Christian faith is that you can't come to the table and have relationship with people in your community that are different than you uh, in belief. And sometimes it's extremely different. Um, I've had conversations with my evangelical Christian uh, friends and coworkers on various topics, one being uh, the whole abortion ban recently, and my friend and I completely opposite viewpoints on this. And we were going back and forth very respectfully. And at the end, we both made our points. And then we said, okay, let's go have some coffee. Because we were able to leave that conversation there knowing that we can contribute to that conversation in a healthy way, but without demeaning one another, without putting one person down, without making the other person feel that their opinion and their belief is not valid. And that takes a huge part of our self-reflection and knowing that we are confident in ourselves and our beliefs and we're strong in that doesn't mean that what the other person is saying is going to delegitimize what you're saying or what you're believing you can have a healthy conversation. And again, debating these things and having conversations about theological uh, issues is great. But now what are we going to do with that? And that's when the practitional part of, of our work comes in because Professor Miroslav puts in the framework of what religions need to look at and how they're supposed to look at things. And even though it's from a Christian you, I think anyone who can read his book will say that, hey, I can use this from my own perspective as well. And I can use these points that he's making to ameliorate situations within my community, within the people that I live with, and people in other communities, because that's what our faith teaches us. So that's so interesting to me that you read uh, Miroslav's book and find application within, within your own community. I was wanting to, to ask about that later in in the conversation about the universality of of the principles but i want to circle back to one of the things you said her was that when uh muhammad came into a new community it was a diverse community and i remember stories of of christians as as he was gaining more power christians came to him to to build alliances with him. And when it came time for, to, for prayer, 
uh, he allowed the the Christians to pray in in his mosque. You know, as as an example of of how we should uh, get along. And and I hear you and some of my Muslim friends drawing on those examples um, as inspiration for why you know we need to reach out. And yet, that doesn't always happen. When uh, I, I recently visited. Uh, Sarajevo, we took a group of students from Notre Dame to see some of our staff there and to learn from the peacemakers that were there. And we were interviewing a man who had served in the uh, Yugoslav army. And he said five years before the conflict, if anyone had told him that they would disintegrate in the civil war five years later, he first would have laughed and then he would have been insulted. He said, because we were living in the same communities together with each other, we sometimes intermarried, you know, and, and our, our buildings of worship were, were, you know, within the same communities. Um, and then he turned to us as, as people from the U.S. And, and had a word of caution. He said, where Yugoslav where Yugoslavia was, the, the Western Balkans were, five years before conflict is where they saw the U.S. now. And it was, it was startling to, to the students and, and to we Americans. It's like, could we be five years out from uh, an event like that? So, Miroslav, that brings me back to you, and, and I'm wondering if what was it that made you want to revise the book? Were you watching things in culture that made you revise the book at this time? But even if you didn't, how, how are you reading the times today? And, and, and what lessons do we need to take from your book? Yeah, um, so, so second edition was partly triggered. Uh, I think it was triggered by a letter that I received from uh, uh, um, an acquaintance. I, I think I, I'm not sure that I ever actually met him in, in person, but he's read my book and then he wrote me and, uh, and said, you know, your book is relevant today. And he was writing this in something like um, uh, 2019 or so, uh, you, or maybe even a little bit earlier. Your book is more relevant today than it was when you wrote it. And when I started thinking about it, I thought, wow, that, that actually is, is true. Because when I wrote the book, which was in the, in the mid 90s uh, of the last uh, century, the entirety of the world, Europe certainly, but also the world as a whole, was in the processes of unification. Globalization was a big word uh, of, that, uh, of that period world was coming coming together right and there were places uh, where where conflicts were were raging but generally the trend was or that's how it was perceived that we were unifying as the world democracy was on the uh, on the march increasing number of countries have becoming uh, were, were becoming democratic that was the environment and then at that time in former yugoslavia um uh, 
tensions were uh, erupting, Yugoslavia was breaking apart. And often it was a question then on the part of uh, my European friends, what's happening with you folks there? Are you barbarians in uh, in that part of the world? Every The whole world is uniting and you uh, guys think that need, you need to fight each other. Why don't you, um, you know, go with the flow and uh, learn something something from the uh, from the world uh, of course during that same time uh, not only in former yugoslavia but in many countries the uh, the seeds of future conflict um, the poison uh, of certain form of globalization was being put into the system that resulted in the conflicts uh, that we have today but as it turns out uh, today for many different reasons and we could uh, spend quite a bit of time analyzing those reasons uh, we are in an identitarian moment an identitarian moment associated with autocratic forms of government as well and that's uh, so with the great powers of today and that's so also in individual smaller smaller communities but that's exactly the situation in which um, exclusion embrace was originally written. These hardened uh, identities and hardened identities always re require strong leaders and and a kind of sense of of strong uh, strong community that is defined in adversarial way, and that's why what we have. Uh, today, and I think that's what we need to speak uh, to, because the future of the world cannot be uh, kind of splintering right at the time where our destinies are so incredibly intertwined and uh, and united. And that's just in terms of survival of the of the world and thriving of the world, but also. Uh, for me, I mean, my, my fundamental values are, are values of the Christian faith. And Christian faith is a universal faith. Each individual person is equal before before a God, and worthy of equal care. Islam is a universal religion honoring particulars, but nonetheless universal. And therefore, we uh, we we need to strive for the unity of humanity. And maybe I'll uh, put the last, uh, say last uh, few sentences, uh, what partly motivates me in the in in writing this book, and other work that, that I do, is I'm really firmly believe that none of us can flourish, unless we truly all flourish. That is to say, the destiny of each individual person and not just of each individual nation is bound up with the destiny of everyone everyone else uh, and that is i think the reality of our lives it's not a theory it's actually right now a reality of our lives that is tangible it used to be always re it's always been reality of our lives it just wasn't as tangible as it is today right now it is tangible and yet we are in this complex uh, vying with one another trying to satisfy our our own uh, interests and my question was then and it is now how can we who are different legitimately different joyfully different how can we as such live together in the same common world under and I think the best way to describe it, we all live under the same roof. We are in a single home that is uh, our world. And that's the challenge of our time. So, Haranessa, what's the answer? 
<laughs> yes. I knew we all live under this. Yes, I'm, I'm so glad. This is this is exactly order. I'll 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 describe the problem, and right. Vanessa and will solve it. Can, can fix them for us. <laughs> we will fix it today, Professor. That's it. We will. <laughs> it was waiting. For us. I love it. <laughs> so, <clears throat> when when I hear Professor Miroslav and other theologians and scholars and talk about what religion says in, in terms of inclusion and having everyone at the table. Uh, I advocate a lot for women because when it comes to faith issues and multi-faith work, a lot of times women are left out. So I will be the one always pointing out the two women on stage compared to the six men that are on stage. And, and that is part of our work too, is that we have to call things out when they're not equitable. And women are here just like men are. We're part of the human race. We're, we have needs, we have things that need to be addressed. And in light of that, and in conclusion with that, the idea of othering other people, and I loved how Professor put it that um, in order for us to flourish ourselves, the whole world has to flourish. Other people have to flourish too. Otherwise there's a lot of inequity and we do see inequity in a lot of different things that we do nowadays. Some of the things that I've seen work with people of other faith groups and my interaction with them is to really see them as human beings and to come up with things that you can do together to fix things in their in the communities. I'm all about that. If someone is on stage and they're talking about my religion says this, my religion says that, as someone who's on the field and as a practitioner and they're not doing anything, for me, they're not giving me examples on how to actually fix issues and address issues that are really dire in communities, whether it's in the United States or overseas. I normally train people, um, especially women, in public speaking and multi-faith engagement. Uh, my biggest passion in all of this work is advocating for religious minorities in Muslim majority countries. And I that's my passion because it's part of who I am as a Muslim. When I read about the history of Islam, when I read about what God says in the Quran, it encourages me to advocate for those who are not of my faith. I would feel highly hypocritical if I'm just advocating for Muslims and there's Christians being persecuted in Muslim countries like Pakistan and others. Um, it would be hypocritical for me to say I'm only about women, women, Muslim women's rights when Jewish women, Christian women are being persecuted as well. So it's always, if we were going to other people, we have to other them in the sense that we see ourselves in them and that we have to come up with uh, ways into, in terms of engaging them and giving them the ability to stand up for themselves. The women that I teach from different parts of the world are, are Muslim and they're Christian women, they're Catholic women. And a lot of the Catholic women wear hobbits and they're sisters and they work in communities where they're marginalized. They don't have running water. They don't have proper access to healthcare. And they feel sometimes intimidated speaking about these things because they're physically very obvious that they're Catholic because of, of the clothes that they wear. Just like when I walk outside, everyone who sees me knows that I'm Muslim. So they view me a certain way. And so me as a Muslim woman teaching these Catholic women to become more confident in who they are is part of my faith. I'm helping another person from another faith advocate for themselves. And that is what we need to do. We need to cross that line and say, I know you worship God differently than my, me. I know you might view things differently than me, but that's okay because you have your path in this life and I have my own path. It doesn't take anything from me to teach you these skills. 
And so I've made friends with women from different parts of the world who I would have never met had I had I not gone into this work. And I love that. And showing them that we can still be friends and we can call each other and have a relationship is so important as well. It's not just about living in an area where my neighbors are Christians and Catholics and Jewish people. No, it's about actually going knocking on their door and saying, hey, I noticed that you haven't been out a couple of days. Do you need something? I've noticed that you were limping or you're using a walker. What do you need? How can I help you? This is what our religion teaches us. This is what professors talking about when it's talking about going out and actually embracing people, not just, oh yeah, I'll put up with them because they live on my street. That's the bare minimum. But if we don't move and we don't shake things up and professor's right, what happened in, in, in his hometown is going to happen in different parts of the world because we are not connecting to one another. We don't feel the empathy of the needs of the people around us because they're not like us. Like, oh, who cares? They, they don't follow my faith or they don't look like me. I'm not going to do anything. No, that's going to drive this world apart. How are we going to live leave a future for our children in peace if we're othering people in a negative way, if we're pointing things out and marginalizing them and not giving them, them the accessibility to things that are their human rights? These are the issues that we need to come in hand. So um, when I was at Adam Center, which is probably the second largest mosque here in the United States, um, I had the privilege of working with different communities. Um, there's a huge opioid issue in West Virginia that the evangelical Christian community, myself and the Jewish community work together. And we bring the youth into this also. We, we expose them to these issues and we have them come up with ideas of how they can fix things. We did drives to collect things for the center. We collected money to give to the center so that the uh, people who are in recovery are not on the streets and going back to drugs because that's the only way they can live their life. And we have to understand these things that are affecting people, drugs, alcoholism, things that are deteriorating people's lives affect all of us. It's not a religious thing. It's a human thing. And we have to come together and see the issues in our communities and find people to work together to fix those things. I know a lot of people have conversations of religion, but that's not gonna fix things. I think we're at a point where we do need to move and we need to come up with ideas where we're actually being able to stand up for one another. If our neighbors are being persecuted, we go and stand in front of their door and we say, no, you cannot come in because they're my neighbors, they're my friends, and I'm going to protect them, even if the perpetrator is from our own background. So I think I think both of you have said religion can be part of the answer, but we've all seen toxic versions of it too. What What is uh, Miroslav, in, in the revised edition of your book, you had said that you wanted to write about the theological underpinnings of what made you uh, think the way you did when you wrote the first edition. And you spent a lot of time talking about love as like loving the other. And that's what I hear her Anessa saying. Is that fair to say? What, what, is, what is the goal that we should strive towards? Some talk about oh, we all need justice. Uh, in fact, in many of the protests, you know, you hear no justice, no peace. Peace Catalyst talks about peace, but we define it in a, in a holistic way, meaning the thriving of all. What is the value 
that we can embrace, that we should pursue, that we should teach, that makes religion helpful. Maybe I haven't said that quite right, but but is it love? Is it justice? Is it peace? What what's what's the goal here? I think all the things you said are embodied in the notion of coming as you are and being able to practice your religion as you are, not feeling threatened by the other person or people, not having to water down your religion. You feel strongly about something, that's okay. You should be able to come into that. And the receiving party has to accept that as well without them feeling that their religion is getting watered down because you're working with someone who thinks differently than you or practices differently than you. See, I think the answer is so simple, but we've made it so complicated throughout time, right? If we look at the way Jesus dealt with people and the compassion he had, he didn't stop and look at them and say, well, you have to be like me and do this like me. He was compassionate to everyone. And you know, when I talk about Prophet Muhammad and his compassion, he didn't stop and say, first, let me see your ID card and what religion you follow and who, who, who do you practice with? And then I'll, I'll be nice to you. No, the humanity that goes deep within ourselves is so grand that we've washed it down to titles and placement on this earth and connection to God in our own way. Come as you are, be who you want to be, practice the way you want, but let's work together. We have spent so much time and energy killing each other, violating each other and the world is crumbling. We have homelessness issues in every community you can think of. We have domestic violence that needs to be addressed. We have drug abuse, we have poverty, we have uh, you know, obviously health healthcare accessibility, climate change, all these things need attention and we're not attending to these things and we're, which are actually affecting all of us in this world that professor called our home. Our home is deteriorating, but we're focusing on things that are just beautiful about who we are, and we're making those into excuses to come after each other. So I think the shift of having love, compassion, justice, all of these things are embodied within our faith, but we need to be able to point them out to people and show it to them. It's, it's good to talk about it, but when you show someone compassion, guess what? they're gonna have your back. If you show someone empathy, they're gonna know that what your religion is actually saying is, is peaceful rather than what they see on TV about you know, people who happen to say, for instance, they're Muslim and they're committing atrocities all across the world. They're not representing me. They're not representing my religion, but I end up having to now you know, answer for their misdeeds as if like, no, no, we're not like them. And I shouldn't have to do that, but that's the world we live in. That when somebody does something bad who's associated to your religion, you end up having to justify that your religion is not like them and that you are not of them either, right? But if we all talk and we get to know one another, those conversations ease out so easily. I mean, Becca's here and I'm going to put her on the spot. I've known Becca for years because I've been working with her. I've built relationship with her. She's an amazing person. We're friends. She invited me to her wedding. If I othered her and said, I don't, you know, I don't want to talk to you and your views, I don't agree with you and, you know, just stay out of my way, that relation would have never happened. I could call her up. I could text her and say, hey, I'm stuck somewhere. She will come and pick me up. And we don't practice the same faith, but we do practice this love and, and, and understanding of what it means to be human. That's beautiful. Thank you, Ernesto. Thank you, Becca, for being a good friend.
Miroslav? <laughs> Well, yeah, you, you know, I, I want to say I want to agree with everything that Khronesa uh, has said, uh, <clears throat> and I want to maybe make just a few footnotes uh, to this and link it to the to the question of um, a variety of terms uh, or categories under which we can engage uh, one another in very productive ways. You mentioned peace. You mentioned justice. You mentioned love. Uh, uh, and uh, and I think uh, it, it's it's possible that different groups will have a uh, different focal points around which they organize uh, our attention and care for one another and for for the planet. And I think that's that's okay. Different religious traditions, maybe different proclivities that we have or interests that that we have. But it seems to me that at least there will be two factors that, that are central to both. And Hernessa uh, has said it in a, in a different ways, the, 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 the same thing. Uh, first, it's an absence of negative, do no harm. <laughs> uh, whether small harm or large, uh, a large harm, that's the first, first command. And then second, care, actively care for another for another person and whatever terminology we use uh, I, I think uh, we need to try to attend to uh, these ways of not harming but enhancing life of another of another person and when we get to, to that to that point uh, I, I think we are then connected with something larger than ourselves. So Christians and Muslims, we're connected with God who cares for the entirety of humanity. We're plugged in into God's project with the world uh, when, we do, when we do that. But we are also bound to the whole of, of community. We're not organized, have not organized our lives around our own little self and its own, uh, own little needs, important as they are. We have kind of tried, we have stepped out into something uh, something larger and that gives weight that gives significance to our lives and makes the lives of everyone more beautiful i i love the way you take theology and make it practical it, it's like here here's what god says and and here's how we can live it out so thank you both of you for for doing that do no harm we hear a lot care actively and intentional you know her nessa was saying you know if her neighbor is, is hurting it's like she's going to stand in front of the door and and, and help her yeah. um but i like i like especially the the limping part if you see your neighbor limping <laughs> do something about it tell them that you see it i love that that's so beautiful <laughs> what what happens when you see your neighbor doing something that that just triggers you that it's like, oh, that is so counterproductive to, to everything that I stand for. And you feel this, your stomach begin to, to nod up. Um, I can know, give you an example of that, Martin. I have a neighbor who puts up flags that my kids have such a hard time with. And they told me like, don't talk to him. Don't do this. And I'm not about that. I always talk to people who are normally not part of the choir. And so every Eid, which is our holiday, um, I normally give out gifts to my neighbors. Um, it's usually like boxes of cookies or candy or something. And my kids told me, don't give him one. And I said, no, that's not right. I said, look, I might not agree with him, 
but he still has the right to be respected as a human being. Mm -hmm. And so I went and I've never talked to him before. And I, when I had moved in here and I gave him a box and he was so moved by it that every time he sees me, he stops my, if I'm moving my, he'll stop my car or he'll stop. And he's like, Hey, how are you? What do you need? I can help you. And, you know, let me know if anything, because he knows like I'm a single mom, I'm taking care of my kids myself. And so he, he understands that like if something goes wrong and he's offering to help me, but see, if I had seen him as this, oh, he's putting up flags of things that don't agree with, I would have never abandoned that connection with him, right? I would have never been able to see him as a human being, and he wouldn't have seen me as someone who cares for him, right? As human beings, we want someone who can, can connect to us. I'm sure he has a story. I'm sure he has hurt, and whatever he puts up is might be completely in disagreement with, with, with me, but I didn't want that to stop me. I went to him on purpose because I said, no, I want to hear her story. And now, like out of all the neighbors, he says hi to me the loudest. <laughs> but that's what I'm saying that like, we're so scared of the others. We're so scared of reaching out, but you'd be amazed at what actually ends up happening. So I love the intentionality uh, of, of your reaching out. And I just think that's so important for us to, to deliberately cross these lines of difference. I, you know, when I look at, at Jesus taking his disciples to Samaritan villages and across the sea to Gentile areas, to, to places that were uncomfortable, perhaps, for his followers, but he was modeling and teaching to be intentional about reaching out uh, to, to the other. That's important. I... Well, our, our time is about gone, um, and I, I, I meant to ask about ashram just, just to, to learn a little bit about that, but perhaps that's a little, little off topic. Um, I, I want to give you both a chance. What are you working on now? Um, Miroslav, I, I heard that you were writing again. doesn't surprise me. It seems you, you write a lot. Uh, what, what are you working on these days? Uh, yeah, right now I, I'm working on uh, on a series of of lectures on the question of striving for superiority. Uh, it it kind of defines our culture, almost every area of our lives, and you can see how there is a value, say in sports, of being superior as the athlete, as, as athlete monetary value, reputational value, and so forth. And you can name in various, various domains, uh, value of striving to be better than somebody else and being better than somebody else. And my question is, what's the human value of being better than somebody else? Mm. And I want to argue that there is also an, of, of and striving to be better than somebody else. And I want to say there is human disvalue. If you strive to be better than somebody else, that doesn't mean not striving for excellence. But the point of being you being better than somebody else is completely irrelevant to the question. If you make it relevant, you, I think, demean yourself and the other, other person, and you're unable to function as a unique individual that God has created you. So that's my topic for this day, striving for superiority and why that's a bad idea for our humanity. <laughs> so many things that our culture just sucks us into 
And unless we're thinking, and, and that's one of the, the values of the holy books, to, to, to reorient us um, away from the siren call of our culture to, to the call of God. So my experience was that, that so it, it was triggered by my experience in Chicago airport. I'm going under the, uh, from, from one terminal to the next under the long tunnel, and I'm, I'm going up those stairs. And I'm climbing the stairs and I see people riding in an escalator and I start feeling myself, I'm better than them because I'm climbing, I'm not spending energy, I'm exercising. And I stop myself in the middle of climbing these stairs and said, you're an idiot, Miroslav. You can't think like that. That's stupid, totally stupid. Uh, and so then I started thinking about this whole issue. And uh, this is my topic. This is how I come up in my, my topics. <laughs> so walking through airports. Inspiration hits. I love it. <laughs> but, 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 did, but did you beat the people to the top of the... Yes, I did. Okay. <laughs> I, 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 I was more virtuous uh, and I was, I was uh, more efficient than they were. I was superior totally to them. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's good to be self-aware. Parnassa, <laughs> what, what are you working on these days? Um, so I've been traveling a bit, um, going to different areas and um, either doing workshops with people on uh, different multi-faith issues or um, speaking on the work that I'm doing. Um, my biggest passion, which you mentioned before, one of the other passions I have, I work with uh, the youth in my community. I have a music background, so I started the first music uh, choir of, for the youth at the Adams Center. And I thought it would, they were just going to like do some singing here and there, but they'd been at a lot more churches and synagogues than probably majority of adult Muslims that I know. And they've been to Shabbat services. They've been to Sunday mass. They get invited to come to sing at the church before the church's own youth choir. And um, that gives them a lot of um, confidence as American Muslims, but it also exposes them to other religions at a very young age. These kids are seven to 16 years old. Majority of them have never been to other faith or tradition uh, places of worship, but they know. And, and I want this to be an example for other communities to take on to expose their children to places of worship that are different than theirs, to respect them, to know about them, so that they're not trying to do interfaith, multi-faith work when they're senior citizens and have more time, but yet they can grow up and say, no, I've done, I've done that when I was seven. I've been to a church, I've been to a temple. Um, so I'm trying to encourage more city leaders in different parts of the United States to start their own choir, because it is a fun way to engage Muslim kids in this work so that they could learn about other faiths as well. Um, and then um, you have my podcast also, so that's going great. Um, and I work with really great people at Multi-Faith Neighbors Network. Um, my boss is an evangelical Christian pastor. Um, and him too, if I text him, he will come running as well. And that is because we all come with who we are in our faith and we don't have to water anything down. And I think that is such a great way to build relationships with people and keep that going for ourselves. Well, thank you for that. Uh, young people, children uh, are great bridge builders. Uh, they, they help us realize that, you know, we all love our children and um, celebrate when they uh, thrive. Uh, and it's just a, a great visual 
to bring us together. In Peace Catalyst, we talk about understanding the other, connecting with the other, and collaborating with the other. And I see both of you um, as partners in that and helping people understand the other and connect with the other and find ways to collaborate toward building this peace, this love that we need to need to thrive. So, uh, so thank you for that. Thank you for your time today uh, to our people who joined in. Thank you for giving us this uh, hour of, of your life. And um, we greatly value um, your partnership in pursuing Shalom, uh, the mutual thriving of all together. If you want to learn more about Peace Catalyst, you can, uh, we have a podcast that uh, Becca is one of the hosts uh, of. Uh, you can check that out uh, at the website at peacecatalyst.org. Uh, um, Hernessa, if people want to learn more about your work, where should we send them? Um, so at Multifaith Neighbors Network, our website is mfnn.org. You can sign up on our newsletter and uh, get to know the work we're doing. I'm pretty active on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. If you want to follow me in my work, that would be a great way of, of connecting with me um, as well. And if anybody uh, wants to email me, uh, my contact information is on our website. Uh, please feel free. I would love to get to know you guys as well. Thank you so much. Mirishlav, how can people track with your work? Yeah, I'm, uh, so, so I'm also on the social media, Twitter uh, these days, um, mostly not so much Facebook. Um, but um, I, I think probably the best is uh, uh, yale.edu faith uh, slash faith. Um, and that's that's the website of our center and you'll, you can explain see what we have done what we're doing and uh yeah and go I know from there. that you have a podcast oh too. we do have a yes yes we do have a podcast as well and that's for the life of the world uh, the podcast is very good well thank you both so much for your time today uh you're both inspiring i'm so glad that you were the first recipients of the rick love peace award and uh, we look forward to see who will who will come after you, who will be uh, receive the award this coming year. Blessings to each one of you and thank all of you for attending today. Thank, thank you very much for hosting us. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Miroslav. It was really nice. Thanks. Good. Good very good to meet you. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, subscribe, and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And to learn more about Peace Catalyst and support our peacebuilding work, please visit our website at peacecatalyst.org.